I got really quiet real fast. A little nerve-wracking up here. Um, yeah, good morning. Thanks for coming in. Um, I'm doing announcements, as you can tell. Um, but I think just during that worship set, like, just some of those, the lyrics just was like, oh, man. Like, sometimes, like, you can get caught up in just, like, singing to sing. And then, like, just hearing this whole crowd and everybody sing together and just the lyrics itself. That was fire. Like, I was, whew, I was feeling it. I was feeling it this morning. Um, so, yeah, let me just do announcements like I'm supposed to. Um, yeah, first things first, um, I believe we have an event coming up. Um, it is called, oh, is it, I, I was kind of like leading it up. Is it a video or a slide first? Oh, okay. It's called the If Gathering. Um, uh, so yes, I kind of just alluded that there will be a video that, uh, probably will do a little bit better at explaining than I am, so I'm just gonna let that roll. Joe, you got this. Okay, before I launch into the real reason for this video, I feel like I need to explain my face. I had an incident with a soccer ball right there this week, so... Uh, but nobody has time for that, so here we go. Um, this week, I got to sit down with Ashley Enriquez to talk about this If Gathering event that's coming up in two weeks on Saturday, November 20th at the church. And um, I asked if I could interview her, kind of spur of the moment when we were meeting together, and she graciously said yes, and she did such a great job. And it was so fun for me to hear her passion for gathering women together with the idea that we would have this conference in November, this one day event. But then after that, it would kind of launch us or move us into homes to sit around a table together um, to not just experience community with each other from Brookview, but also it could be a place where you could invite a friend that you know might need to sit in a room with other women and share a meal. Um, if you don't know Ashley yet, a little bit about her. Um, she's married to Dominic and she has two elementary aged girls, Eva and Iris, and they are just so cute. Um, but they moved here to Washington from California right as COVID was hitting or maybe shortly after. Um, so they started coming to Brookview shortly after they moved here and their only experience here has been Brookview in COVID. Like with RSVPing to church and mass and no singing and they've also only known Washington in the midst of pandemic. Um, I just can't imagine that, uh, to try and move and, and find a community in this season. But Ashley has a heart for this if gathering. Um, she saw a picture of it at her church that she went to in California. And um, she asked if we'd ever be interested in doing something like it. And um, I am just so excited that she's willing to invest her time and her energy in spearheading this. So here's Ashley. Being new to the community made me really anxious and, and walking into a church and being that it was COVID, I didn't really know where to start building a community. And so um, 
I jumped into a small group and it was great experience, um, but given changes that were happening in our family life, um, it kind of pulled me away and I haven't been able to commit to returning. So in the summer, I thought, okay, everyone's off of small groups. Um, it gives an opportunity for me to introduce something that I was doing in California. And so I remember the huge impact that it had on me and the group of women that were in my group. And so I decided to just kind of run with it and, and invite people that were in my small group um, and just kind of throw out the idea and see what they thought. Knowing the impact that it had on not only my walk with Christ, but seeing the relationship in the community that I built because of it really did affect um, my, my want and my need to tell everyone about it. Um, I feel like God puts those types of things on our hearts. So if this is how you were impacted, you can't keep that to yourself. You gotta go and you gotta spread the word. You gotta make sure everyone else around you knows it because it's it's exciting stuff. And I feel like the excitement of seeing the how it impacted so many women, how it impacted me, um, I wanna be able to share that with other people and have other people be able to experience that. And also to be able to, to you know bring that person that they've had on their mind that's they know like they're going through a season that maybe they've moved or they've lost friendships or things are just you know in a turmoil because of given the climate that we're in that a lot of people are feeling isolated so this is a huge opportunity for people to say like okay i'm gonna start anew i'm gonna see um what this type of community can look like and um but i think that that's what a lot of women need um because we have so much pretending <laughs> that's happening in our world but it's like no I just I really want to know the real the real you and so yeah I hope that you will be able to join us on Saturday November 20th for this if gathering we're going to hear from uh, some world-class speakers we get to sit around a table together and enjoy conversation and community with each other um, the cost for it is 15 bucks and that covers your lunch and snacks and coffee and tea and all the things um, and you can sign up at brookviewchurch.com forward slash women and also when you go to sign up you will notice that we are looking for some help um, that that day as well. We need help with setup and with teardown. We need table hosts and so essentially a table host would just be a person who's helping to facilitate conversation. You don't have to come up with questions, we'll give those to you, but you're just kind of caring about the people at your table and helping to lead conversation and direct it. And then we're looking for people that can decorate as well. We want it to be pretty. Um, this is a women's event. Come on, gee whiz. <laughs> um, so, okay, sign up, help us to plan by signing up early if you pretty please could. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Um, so, uh, yes, sign up for that. Um, if you can go, you should go. Um, and then also another way to communicate if you wanted to help in some setup fashion or whatnot, is you can do that on your communication card. Um, and 
you can do like prayer requests on your communication card or sign up to help or if you want to get involved in different ways that's a that's a great way to uh, communicate that through the communication card so um with that i think i'm i think i'm done Woohoo! He gave his only begotten son, but the world so hated God that it sinned against him. If you do not turn from your sins, you will die. It's that simple. You either turn or you burn. If you do not repent, you will be cast into the lake of fire and you will burn there forever. This is what you call love speech. We're telling the truth here. Jesus Christ will come back and judge all of us. If we die separated from God in this life, we will be separated for eternity. Think of the worst horror movie you have ever seen. We're going to go to a drive-thru right now and demonstrate that you can hand out gospel tracts in drive-thru windows. So fast food restaurants, if you're making a coffee stop. Okay, so we're just going to take our stuff we're gonna pay for it we'll try to hand out one of these sometimes usually they take them sometimes they don't Starbucks is a great place because you can probably assume that if you work at Starbucks you're not a believer that's just, that's just the way it goes it's the nature of it how's it going sir Would you like a gospel track today sorry gospel track today to save you from your sins Oh, yeah. You think you're a good person? Sorry? Do you think you're a good person? I guess. Yeah? The Bible says no one's good, right? No, thank you. No. Take care, boys. Take care of your soul, sir. Like a gospel track today? Save you from your sins? How's it going, sir? Like a gospel track? No one's good. That's the problem. guys nothing like that to pump you up first thing in the morning you know what else will pump you up is to know that it is Rebecca Ellersick's birthday today and someone else too is Haley is it your birthday today as well oh my goodness well ladies welcome 22 24 here we go. I want to say to both of you, man, I'm really glad that you're alive. And you've been such a blessing to this whole community, and um, we're thankful for you guys. Happy birthday. I hope it's awesome. Well, here we are. We are in the middle of this seven-week series. This is week five. If you're hating it, we're getting there. It's <laughs> week five. Uh, but we're, we're essentially asking, how, how can we best engage our culture with the gospel. And we started with two weeks that were just focused on, well, what even is the gospel? What, what is the good news of Jesus that, that we are being asked to go and, and share? 
But for the last few weeks, we've shifted a little bit and we've focused a little bit more on like methodology. Like what does it look like to share Jesus in our time and our culture? Like is it a four spiritual laws track that you, you hand out to the, all the unbelievers at Starbucks? Um, is it a sermon series where you invite your friends and just pray to God the pastor doesn't mess it up, right? And say something offensive and set all your friends backwards? Um, is, it, is it saturating your social media with religious quotes and scripture verses? Is it an apologetics debate where you just watch a brilliant Christian intellectual slay a Darwinian materialist? Ho- hopefully. Uh, is it a bullhorn on a street corner or a sandwich board sign? Is it a billboard on the side of I-5 with heaven and hell all over it? A lot of us just cringe hearing some of those examples because they feel tone deaf and out of touch with this cultural moment that we're in. But what if preaching the gospel could look a lot more like eating a meal in your home? with a friend from across the street? What, what if it could look highly relational and, and more organic? What, what if it looks a lot like you being you, but joining, in Jesus, joining with Jesus in what, what he's already doing? What, what if it, it looks a lot like love being lived? What, what if it looks like meeting people in the place of pain with love? I mean, isn't that kind of what Jesus did when we read the four Gospels? I mean, in story after story, he goes to the place of pain, the place of sickness or the place of demonization or the place of loneliness or feeling like an outcast. And he just, he just loves people into the kingdom. Right now, the, the pain points in our culture are like way too many to list. But I, I just want to quickly point out two that I think have become epidemic right now. And, and one of the most glaring all around us is just that people are... Like everywhere you go, people are lonely. According to um, the Survey Center in Amer- on American Life, the percentage of Americans who say they have no close friends at all has quadrupled since 1990. 54% of Americans report sometimes they're always feeling that nobody knows me well. And up to 40% of Americans have zero close friends or confidence, somebody that they can, they can actually share the real stuff with. So people are lonely, but also we all know that we're, we're living through a mental health crisis right now, and the reasons for that are complex, I'm sure, but one of the most obvious is that people in our secular age are, are living without meaning. The secular life script is great if humans are animals and up and to the ride and more money and more pleasure and more self-gratification and more, quote, freedom to do whatever you want are enough. But, but if we aren't just bodies with appetites, if, if we are souls, if survival and pleasure are not enough for us, then the secular life script is inadequate. It is, it's a chasing after the wind. And at some point, late or early or in between, you, you come to feel that it, it is, it's an emotional crisis. American suicide rates increased by 33% in the last two decades. Now, my point with all of this is, is simply that people are in pain. Like all around us, people are in pain. So, so could preaching the gospel look a lot less like a, like a sales strategy for Jesus 
and a lot more like love being lived, a lot more like the stories of Jesus that we read in the Gospels. Now, there are a lot of ways to go about preaching the gospel to our culture. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. And there's all sorts of room for, for creativity. I'm not bashing any particular, I'm just, there's a lot of ways to do it. And in certain times, in certain places, in certain ways, they can be right. There is no one size fits all that just always trumps all the rest. But in this series, we've been exploring a few more just like relational examples. And today we're going to look at another highly relational organic approach. And this is, this is one that when you read the Gospels, Jesus used all the time. And today we're going to look at two different examples of it. The first one is Luke chapter 19. It's a famous story. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Get out of the tree, dude. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this, and they thought it was so gracious and sweet and kind. <laughs> no. All, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Note, all the people, not a few of the people, all the people. Okay, but at his house now, after spending time with Jesus, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, meaning this man is in the family of God. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, for some of you who grew up in church, or even if you've been around our kids' church program, there is a song that goes with this story. How many of you know the song that I'm talking about? Oh, we are a holy people. <laughs> All right, well, if you know it, sing the first couple of lines with me. Zacchaeus was a wee little and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree where the Lord he wanted to see. Okay, cut it off right there. <laughs> you guys sound like a choir. We have, well, I think I heard some harmony in there. <laughs> Listen, so this is kind of a famous kids, like, but if, if you kind of go off the Sunday school kids version of this story, it's easy to read the story as this sort of, oh, cute the wee little man and Jesus at the table for dinner, like as if the moral of the story is, you know, Jesus loves short people too, <laughs> right? But, but the people of his own day, if, we're, if we read the story well, it, they did not see this as cute at all. I mean, look at verse seven. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. 
I mean, to the original audience, it was not cute at all. It, it was like a lot of Jesus' life for them. It was disorienting and disturbing. Jesus was deliberately disregarding the social customs, customs of the time. So let me explain two things that are happening in this story because most of us, I'm pretty sure most of us are not first century Jewish people. First, um, Zacchaeus was a tax collector and that meant something. Now, we come across tax collectors and the idea of that a lot and, and I've explained this many times. If you've been around Brookview, you've, you've heard it a lot, but here's a, here's a real quick explanation. Israel at this time was occupied and oppressed by the Roman Empire, and the Romans taxed people into utter poverty. They lost land, they lost their homes, their children went hungry, like it was brutal. But the tax collectors were not Romans that, that Rome brought into the region. They were locals who sold out their countrymen to get rich quick. And in Israel, they were notoriously corrupt because as incentive, the Romans allowed them to just add whatever fees they wanted onto the already extremely high tax rates of the Romans. So Rome might take 50% or 70% from you in taxes, like literally 70. There's stories of them taking up to 80% from people in taxes. But then, what, not only is that horrible, but then a fellow Israelite, one of your own countrymen, a local, might add 10, 15, 20% more, any percentage that he wanted, and it would just go straight into his pocket. He was essentially stealing from you and looking you right in the eye as he did, and there was nothing that you could do because behind him, there was an entire Ro Roman legion backing him up. So, I mean, can you imagine how you would feel about tax collectors? One time I faced something just like this. We were on a Haiti trip, and on the way out of the airport in Haiti, the Haitian security guard lady, she rummaged through all of my stuff, like my toiletries and, and all that stuff, my carry-on, and she was like carefully inspecting each item. And I was like, what is she doing? Is she trying to find, you know, how many ounces they all are? Is she, what's, what's happening here? She grabbed my hair gel, and she just put it in the little bin behind her. Yeah, it was, <laughs> and, and I was like, but wait, it's under three ounces. I'm like, no, no, it's really, it's under three ounces. And she looked at me with this wry smirk and she goes, meh, it's too long. Wait, what? That's not even a thing. You guys, she stole my hair gel. And she just like laughed at me as she did it. And I was powerless. There were literally guys with guns standing behind her. And so I'm just with my hair gel. So I know exactly how the Israelites felt. <laughs> right? No, I, like in that moment, I was like, this is an outrage. Like I was boiling, you know? So I think we can hardly even imagine how much the tax collectors were like hated and loathed. In, in that culture, the, the two lowest rungs on the moral ladder were tax collectors and anybody else? You know what else? Prostitutes. And, and as we're about to read, who does Jesus constantly eat with? Tax collectors and prostitutes. Okay, secondly, here's the second thing that, that brings this story into focus for us, is that meals meant a lot more in that society than they do in ours. In Jewish society, there were all kinds of norms around 
table fellowship. Now, in every culture, like ancient or modern, meals are, are kind of used as boundary markers. Like, think of a middle school lunchroom. Think of the kids and how they're gathered at the different tables, right? They're divided by, by cliques or coolness. But then you think about the restaurants that people eat at all over Seattle. They also serve as boundary markers. Meals bring people together, but meals also keep people apart. I mean, think of like pre-civil rights restaurants with no black signs on the front door, or in the UK, like no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Or today, how the wealthy will eat at one type of restaurant, or how the, and the middle class will eat at another type of restaurant, and the working class at another. Right? Like Brooklyn used to play basketball with all these girls down in Ballard, and some of them were super wealthy, and they're like, you want to go out for dinner? And we're like, yeah. We go out to this place, it was me and Brooke and Jen, and we come out, there's like $450. I was just like, this is once in a lifetime. And they're like, yeah, we were here last Thursday. <laughs> you kidding me? So, so table fellowship is, is kind of a, a boundary marker. It's a boundary marker in all societies. But it was especially true in first century Jewish society. And in their world, a rabbi would not be caught dead eating a meal at the home of somebody like Zacchaeus. Uh, New Testament scholar Scott Barchi writes, It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Meal times were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Another scholar Joachim uh, Jeremiah, I think is how you say it, writes this. In the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. It's been said that, that Jesus got himself killed because of who he ate with. Because for Jesus, meals were not a boundary marker, but a sign of God's welcome into the kingdom. They were not a way to keep people out. They were a way to invite everybody in. In fact, notice two things at the end of our story in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house. In what sense has salvation come to Zacchaeus and his household and his family? What is Jesus saying has happened? Now, John Mark Comer explains it this way. I love this. He says, note what salvation here is. Is it Zacchaeus is now going to heaven when he dies? Is it Zacchaeus is at a legal, kind of, uh, legal level kind of justified in the court of heaven? Is it passing new legislation in the Roman Senate against tax farming? No. It's there was a soul who was far from God and the community of God and the way of God. 
and he's been brought back to the table through Jesus' loving welcome. He's been joined into this group of disciples of Jesus. He's turned from his sin. He's made restitution for injustice. And he is now becoming a part of the new community of Jesus that is being formed into the people who one day can serve and steward all creation in love. That here is salvation. And so if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus changed lives over meals. He changed lives over meals. It's just like one meal after another after another, just changed life after changed life after changed life. And people found, like, they, they find grace and new community to which they belong. Let me, let's just read through one more example of this. We could read through dozens. We could spend all morning just reading examples. But here's Luke 7, starting in verse 33. It says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It says, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. In other words, look at the fruit of my life. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, that's code for a prostitute, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, she didn't like break in and do something illegal. Their homes were set up different than ours. They had open, open air doors, and so she's able to just kind of walk in. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. You should never have a dark thought in front of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman, yet said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Now, all of these were standard ways to show respect to a guest when they came into your house in this culture. Give them water for their feet or maybe even have a servant wash their feet. Give them a kiss as a greeting, pour oil on their head. Now, Simon the Pharisee has intentionally not done these things in order to disrespect Jesus. But the woman is treating Jesus with great honor. And Jesus is saying, hey, Simon, you think you're awesome, but it's actually this woman who is behaving like the host of this party. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then other guests began to say among themselves, 
Who is this who even forgives sins? They're like, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, yep. (laughs) Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now these two examples of Jesus eating and drinking with sinners, with a tax collector in one and a sex worker in the other, you guys, these are not the exception. These are like the norm for Jesus. And there are many, many, many more in the four Gospels. Jesus, as we just read, was called a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And while I I really don't think that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard, he got that reputation somehow. There are over 50 references to food in the Gospel of Luke alone. One New Testament scholar writes, writes this, I love this, says, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Right? You're like, you know what? I can't follow Jesus. <laughs> they got a hummus in the Middle East, right? Like, and when he's not eating, he's teaching. And when you think about it, a huge chunk of his teachings are all around the metaphor of food. I mean, just think about like his parables. How, how many of his parables are out about parties or banquets or, or fancy dinners? In fact, one of his primary metaphors for the kingdom of God is just that it is a feast. Theologian Peter Lethert writes this. He says, for Jesus, feast was not just a metaphor for the kingdom. As Jesus announced the feast of the kingdom, he also bought into reality through, he brought it into reality through his own feasting. Unlike many theologians, he did not come preaching an ideology, promoting ideas, or teaching moral maxims. He came teaching about the feast of the kingdom, and he came feasting in that kingdom. Jesus did not go around merely talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking a lot. (laughs) When Jesus was gathering people around a table for a meal, he was extending an invitation to them into a new kind of community. He wasn't just eating food and drinking wine. Jesus was forming a new humanity. Brothers and sisters, like a new family made up of all kinds, a new humanity with a new king, King Jesus, and they would live together as family in the kingdom of God. In other words, they'd begin to live out right now in the present what will one day become true for all humanity. And in a sense, it's fair to say that that Jesus walked people into the kingdom one meal at a time. Now, there are so many different ways that we could preach the gospel to our culture right now. And again, it is not a one-size-fits-all by any means. And Jesus used many forms as well. It was not all about eating. But a huge one for him was table fellowship. So much happened around a table. And so many times when Jesus encountered broken people far from God, he he would open up, not his home, right, because he didn't have one. He'd open up their home and then invite himself over for dinner. And he would play not just the guest, but in many ways, he would also play the host. He would break bread and drink wine, and he would listen, and he'd offer wisdom, and he'd take the conversation deeper, and he would attend to people. And, and this practice of Jesus, if you, if you want to label what it's, what it's kind of called in the New Testament, it goes by the name of hospitality, which meant something very different in the New Testament than in our modern world. The, the Greek word translated hospitality is philozenia. 
And you're like, okay. Well, no, this is cool because it's, it's, it's a compound word, right? Uh, philo means, does anybody know what that means? Love. And so you think of Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia, Philadelphia, which is the city of what? Brotherly love. So xenia means stranger, okay, or foreigner. So philoxenia is to love a stranger like family, like a brother or sister or mother or child. Some of you have heard of uh, xenophobia, which is what? Fear of strangers, yes. So philoxenia is, is like the exact opposite of that. It is the love and welcome of strangers. That's what hospitality is. Rosaria Butterfield, a former, former English professor from Syracuse, defines it this way. She says, turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. As followers of Jesus, we are actually commanded all through the New Testament to just continue with what Jesus started. So to, to exercise hospitality. Here's a few examples. Romans 12, 13. Always be eager to practice hospitality. First Peter 4, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Well, how do we love one another? Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Hebrews 13, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. How? Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. What? That's cool. Again, Rosaria Butterfield. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality, which I love that because I can do that. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Now, let me, let me just, <clears throat> let me make an important clarification, and this is a big deal. Hospitality is not the same thing as entertaining. Because when I say hospitality, some of you, depending on how old you are or maybe like the kind of culture that you grew up inside of, you envision like Martha Stewart doing entertaining, right? And there's this like picturesque 4,000 square foot or 6,000 or 10,000 whatever square foot house with a formal dining room and the lighting is perfect and there's high-end china and, and everything and everyone's happy and there's flowers and the birds are chirping and it sounds like Cinderella outside, right? Or if you're a little more millennial and just like boho chic and cool and whatever that is, I, I'm making that up as I go. But if you're a little more millennial, you know, like Martha's for old people, right? So you want something more organic, uh, like an outdoor setting with like perfect lighting. Look at how the lights are just perfect. They're just the right kind of bulb to be cool, aren't they? Oh, yeah. And the landscaping is warm and friendly and their makeup is pristine. That's not all bad, okay? I'm not slamming that, but that version of hospitality, it writes off a lot of people. Like, how do you do that if you're poor or you're not a model or you share a place with like three messy single guys, right? That version of hospitality is undoable for a whole bunch of people, for, uh, probably for most people. 
And so if you're sitting here and you're hearing me talk about hospitality and you're envisioning entertaining and you're like elbowing your spouse and you're like, babe, we need to do a $30,000 remodel so we can practice hospitality like Jesus. (laughs) You know, I've been saying it for years now. Look, the Holy Spirit is moving and Pastor Jason just said. (laughs) I just went, no, I did not. (laughs) So let me clarify. That is not what the New Testament means by hospitality. Jesus didn't have any of that, not a lick of it. And when the New Testament writers describe hospitality, that's not the picture. Hospitality is not the same thing as entertaining. Let me, let me just do a real quick, super quick run through of it, like a contrast between hospitality and entertaining, okay? Entertainment is about exclusion. You invite the in crowd. Hospitality is about inclusion. It's an open table where all are welcome. Entertainment is about impressing people. You show off your home or your apartment or your yard or your landscaping or your culinary skills or your wide array of social connections. Hospitality is about serving people. It's not about you. It's about them feeling welcomed. It's about them finding a place where they belong and feel loved. Entertainment is about reciprocity. I have you over and, and now it's, it's your turn to have me over or to take part in my thing or to get on board with me in this venture I'm, or get me a job or, you know, get me into the next career thing that I, or to connect me with the in crowd a little bit more. Hospitality is about, it's about generosity. It's about giving to people and expecting nothing in return. Entertainment is about social ladder climbing. You, you move up the social ladder one, uh, one party or, or, or one event at a time. Hospitality is about forgetting the ladder altogether. One time Jesus was at a party at a wealthy home and he was watching people just clamor for the most respected seats around the table, which was a big deal in the first century. And he said, he said when you give a luncheon or a, di- or a dinner, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. New Testament scholars point out that Jesus and the early church, they picked up on a practice from the culture of their day, hospitality, And it was and still is in the Near East like this super high value. But instead of using it as a way to climb the social and economic ladder, for Jesus and his followers, it was a form of downward spirituality. It was a way to serve the poor or the lonely or the broken. To turn those on the, uh, to include those that were on the outside. And so let me just say, hospitality is more than just having friends over for dinner. It's, it's reaching across boundary lines. Like historians argue that this was the primary way that the gospel spread so rapidly. Like from a few hundred people eating together in the upper room to over half the population of the Roman Empire in just 300 years. That's extraordinary. How did that happen? Well, they, they did it with no political power. They did it with no legal protection 
under waves of persecution, millions literally eaten alive in the arena with no internet, no sound systems, no printing press, no church buildings, no stages, no celebrity pastors. The gospel just spread from one home to the next, from one table to the next over bread and wine. Now, you and I live in like 21st century American culture. So it's not identical, right? So how, how might this look for, for you and for me? I mean, we're living in a very different time, uh, to be sure. And yet, I think that hospitality can and should still be a bedrock of the kingdom of God. And I just want to lay out four helpful concepts that I think can move us in the right direction in our day. The first is, be invitational. Just take some initiative and organize something. Um, last Sunday was Halloween, and um, so Jen had this idea. We're watching the Seahawks game in the afternoon, and I'm tired. It's after church, and she's like, hey, babe what would you think of having a fire in our driveway tonight? And then like inviting our neighbors and maybe a few friends to come over and just like hang out. You know, I could order pizza and we'll put drinks out and, and just whoever wants to come is, is welcome. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, babe. Go Hawks, <laughs> right? Um, she's more Christ-like than me, for those of you that didn't know this. But so, so she threw something out on social media and then texted a few of our neighbors and then she, she came to pick up Brooklyn from the church because she got back from an event and she picked up a fire pit and Jen hoisted that in the back of it and then she came home and she set it all up and, and, um, and so we eventually the game got over and it was time for trick-or-treaters and all that so we went out, lit the fire and she got the pizza and the drinks and all that and at first it was just our neighbors from across the street and so we were able to have a really nice like intimate conversation with them. Um, and we just put the candy in a big bowl uh, in the driveway with a sign that said, you know, help yourself. And so the trick-or-treaters just walked up and served themselves. And we admired all the cute little outfits. And they, they came in droves in my neighborhood. I don't know about your neighborhood. My neighborhood was crazy. But mostly, you know, as we admired the costumes and all that, we just ate pizza and visited with our, our neighbors. And they've had a really terrible time in life recently. And they're super, super lonely. And so we just listened a lot. And we asked a lot of questions. And it was a really, really beautiful time. But then later, more neighbors came. And then more neighbors. And by like 9 o'clock, we had several different house, houses of people from our block all standing in our driveway and eating pizza and eating candy and all of that, including a few neighbors that we've actually never met. Um, and one guy came over, I'd, I'd never met him before, and he was like, hey, dude, just want to tell you, your, your lawn looks freaking sweet. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it does. <laughs> so it's become kind of a hobby for me in these last couple of years, and so I was like, oh, thanks, man. And one of the other neighbors, and this guy I've met, he was like, yeah, but you're killing me. He's like, my wife is on me all the time. <laughs> She's like, why can't, you do our, why can't you do better with our yard? She's like, come on. And this is what he said. He said, why can't you make it look like Pastor Fat Grass over there? <laughs> and he said it, and there was all these people in the driveway, and I was like, did he say Fat Grass? <laughs> like, Okay, I guess this is kind of a compliment. She hates me, but that's kind of a compliment. So 
Found out the lady down the street calls, street calls me Pastor Fatgrass. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. A lot of people were getting real. And so, and all of this happened because Jen organized something. And we met neighbors and we got this super impromptu hangout. And, and we got connected to them and they got connected to each other. And it was just really cool. So, so how do you do this? Well, first of all, be invitational. Like what could you organize, small or large? And then who could you include? Is there a way to build community over food? People like to eat. Um, yeah, Brian. <laughs> bread, bread, Brian. Homemade, the perfect yeast that you feed. It's a little thing. So my daughter, Kate, um, just to, she, she lives with three college roommates, and, uh, and they have a house. It's a great house. One of, one of the roommates, the parents bought it, and they all live there, and they're using it as a rental investment property. It's pretty sweet. Um, but they decided that they would do this for them, so they decided they would do a roommate dinner once a week. Um, so w- what happens is one of them cooks for everybody, and they like share a family recipe or something, and then they like all share recipes afterwards. So, and then the other three girls that aren't cooking, they all clean while the one girl is is cooking. So they stay on top of keeping their house clean and all that. And they and then, but also they connect on a deeper level once a week. Like they just make sure they check in about life, like highs and lows, like what's happening with you, and how can we pray for you? And sometimes they pray for each other. And so for, for two of her roommates and for Kate, this is actually their third year living together. And so if you think about that, if they do, say, 30 roommate dinners per year, and I think that's probably on the low end, that's like 90 dinners together over the course of their college experience together. Just checking in about life. And here's what's become really cool about this. They, they are not like roommates. They are, they are like family. And it is, is beautiful. Now, how did this get started? I, I don't know. My guess is that Kate probably had something to do with it. But somebody has to be invitational. Someone has to throw out the idea. Someone has to organize something and invite people. So what I'm saying is, is there a way for you to do that with somebody somewhere somehow? With who? Is there somebody that would be deeply blessed by being invited into something like that with you? Okay, second, be willing to host if you can. So if you have a home and you're able to, to host, then, then find a way if you can. And, and you, don't, you don't have to have the perfect home. It doesn't have to be an impressive space. It doesn't need to be Martha Stewart. It just needs to be as warm and loving as you can make it. Like your home, modest or not, could be an outpost for community. I mean, what, what if your home started to feel like home to a few other people? What, what, what kind of blessing might that be for them? Who, who would be really touched to have that space feel like home? Whether it's just for one evening or whether it becomes a regular thing that you're doing. And if you don't have a home, here's the thing. You can still do this. You, you can still play the host. You can still organize. Maybe you meet at someone else's home. But you invite people and you organize the thing and you help and you set up and you clean up and you, and you make sure that people are welcome and, and wanted and you, you just participate in that way. Like, and like if you need to go to a restaurant, go to a restaurant. If you're super COVID cautious, then go, to out, go somewhere outdoors that has heaters. 
You don't have to have a home to be able to facilitate community and to even behave as a host. For Jesus, it was never his home. But in a sense, he consistently played the part of the host. Okay, third, be attentively curious. Like when you're with people, be attentive to them and be curious about their life. It's amazing how much people feel loved when they feel known. And right now, so many people feel lonely and isolated. And one of the easiest ways to love people is to gather them over a meal. And then just like be attentive to them and be curious about them and ask questions about their life and their experience and their perspective. And if they say something you disagree with, you don't have to jump down their throat necessarily, right? People are amazing. Like all people are amazing. They know stuff you don't. They see things differently. They, they feel things you don't. They have experiences you don't. And you can love them just by being curious. And when there's something impressive about them, be impressed. A few years ago, I heard a, I heard a TED Talk that kind of really changed the way that I, I relate to people. It was, it was only 10 minutes long, um, but it left this impact, this lasting impact on me. It was by a woman named Celeste Headley, um, a host from NPR. And the talk was, uh, was entitled, 10 Ways to Have Better Conversations. And I recommend it. I, I, um, but here's, here's some of what she said. I just listened to it and pulled out some of the stuff I really like. She said, many of you have already heard a lot of advice on this. Things like, look the person in the eye. Think of interesting, interesting uh, topics to discuss in advance. Nod and smile to show that you're paying attention. Repeat back what you just heard or summarize it. I want you to forget all of that, she says. It is crap. There's no reason to learn how to show you're paying attention if you are, in fact, paying attention. You need to enter every conversation assuming that you have something to learn. Everybody you meet knows something you don't. Everybody is an expert on something. Also, don't equate your experience with theirs. If they're talking about having lost a family member, don't start talking about the time you lost a family member. If they're talking about the trouble they're having at work, don't tell them about how much you hate your job. It's not the same. It is never the same. All experiences are individual, and more importantly, it is not about you. You don't need to take that moment to prove how amazing you are or how much you've suffered. So on Halloween night, we, we met another neighbor for the first time and, and found out that he's like an expert in audio engineering. And he records and produces music for some bands that we know. And um, so it's pretty cool. But we also found out that he's pretty lonely. The COVID's been like really hard on him. So he does some recording on the side, but like his wife is the primary breadwinner. So he's like a stay-at-home dad and he's just been really lonely. And the fact that his wife brings home the bacon is cool, but also really hard. And so he wrestles with identity and parenting and this feeling of seclusion. And so we just asked open-ended questions and we listened with curiosity and oh my goodness, it was like somebody popped the top off of a soda can. I mean, he just was pouring it all out. Like he, no one has been doing this with him in his life. 
And we discovered a guy that is brilliant and talented, but also a guy who is struggling with all the things that humans do. And what happened that night is that he, he became more real to us and we became more real to him, more human. Okay, last one. Be in tune with the Holy Spirit. Go into it listening to the whispers of the Spirit. And you could hear all kinds of things. You might hear, you know, offer to pray for them or ask more about that or invite them to that thing or do this kind thing for them or offer to help them in this way or share your experience and how walking with Jesus has, has really been a special thing for you in your life or you could just fill in the blank. If you're listening, the, the, the Spirit could direct you to a thousand different things. But don't just let it be about food and conversation alone. If you tune in, God can direct you to some powerful things. So it's about going on an adventure of loving people, right? With God, with the Holy Spirit. It's about inviting, including, listening, attending, and then letting God direct you from there. And my my final thought is, is simply this. Jesus still moves around bread and wine. Now, we don't live in first century Mediterranean culture, but you guys, Jesus still moves around tables. This week I had, a, I had dinner with some of my closest friends, Tony Ellersick, James Fan, and Joey Bowie, who are all present here today. God bless them. <laughs> and they're all leading men's groups. And so am I. So on Thursday, we had, we had dinner together. And it was sort of a check-in about groups and leading and, and all of that. But more than that, really, it was a check-in about life. It's just four friends eating and drinking and connecting. And I'll, here's what I'll tell you guys. I was so stinking excited to get together with those guys. So excited to hang out and catch up because those guys are like brothers to me. Like, they really are. I, uh, I, some of you don't know, I'm an only child. And some of you are like, you are? That explains a lot. <laughs> I know. If you come over to my house, I will not share my toys. <laughs> so I, I, I don't have this big family. I don't. But I'll tell you what, I do have brothers. And, and it's not just those guys. I mean, I have brothers and sisters all throughout this church, but I'll tell you what, I love those guys. And, and how did that happen? Well, we have served together and we've traveled together and we have worshiped together, but you know what else we've done? We have eaten together. We have eaten together a lot. I mean, a lot. I, I can't, the number of meals with those guys is just like astronomical with them and their wives and sometimes with their kids and all of that. It is, it's mind-blowing to think about. But if all we ever did is just attend church services together, it could not possibly be the same. Around tables, Jesus has turned strangers into friends and friends into family. And I have been blessed through hours and hours of table fellowship. Jesus still moves around tables. So, main thought for today is this. How might you allow him to move through you? How can you be invitational? How can you host? How can you be attentively curious? And how can you tune in to the Holy Spirit? 
Father in heaven, I thank you that this is one of, one of the more obvious models of Jesus for how to do evangelism and how to reach out to people and how to love people and how to serve people because I like food. And I like eating and drinking and, and I like hanging out with people and I like getting to know their story and I like asking questions and I just love it. And I'm so thankful that a big call on my life to be a pastor is to just be with people and do this kind of stuff. What a gift. But for all of us, what an opportunity that there is to love people and to get to know them and, and to, when it makes sense, have conversations that, that draw them into relationship with you. But even in the meantime, to, to sort of welcome them into the kingdom, in a sense, by welcoming to them to our table. And so, God, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us to think about people in our life that could be blessed by this, to think about other people in our life that we could maybe connect them with, and maybe we have a gathering that's got a few different people, and we introduce them, and we, and we build community among them. But I pray that in the midst of all of it, your Holy Spirit would be present and working in us, and that you would do the kinds of things that we see Jesus doing in the four Gospels because that stuff turned the world upside down. And I pray that you, you, God, would use us to turn some people's world upside down for the good. For the good, amen.